It really is the damnedest thing. Chris will tell you that himself. When he's in the army, when he's flying around in helicopters, taking enemy fire, he was terrified. He never thought he'd look back on it later and miss anything about it. I, at the time, no, I figured, you know, I'm not going to miss this. Why am I going to miss this? Somebody's constantly shooting at me, trying to kill me, trying to kill the guys that I'm working with. You know, I'm, I, uh, <laughs> you've got to be out of your mind if you miss this, you know. But then down the road, you think, well, you know, I really miss that excitement. I'm, I miss that danger. I miss the action. Fred Salatore came back from war and got a job selling insurance in Texas. The adrenaline rush is so great, and there are not many times you and I in our, in our walk of life are in a situation where the decisions we make impact the lives uh, and deaths of others. And this is the thing I was really curious about is, is when you came back, did, 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 you, did your regular life seem kind of stupid? Uh, yes, not so much dumb or stupid, but boring. And, uh, I mean, there wasn't much to it. Uh, you get up at at uh, 5.30 and you're in the office by 7.30 and you go home about 6.30. And, I mean, it's just, it's it's anticlimactic, I suppose. And when you're 23 years old, it's a little depressing initially. When did you find something that was as intense as the military to replace the military? I haven't. Fred's Army service in Vietnam ended in 1967. Chris left Vietnam in 69. And it took Chris a while to figure out what to do with himself when he came home. Nothing felt right after what he'd been through. He went from job to job until he signed up with the Baltimore Fire Department. And let me tell you, when I got out of the fire academy and I was assigned to my first unit, um, and I had my very first fire, um, I was scared to death. My adrenaline was just pumping big time. And it was a cool feeling, believe it or not. It was a cool feeling. It was something that I had missed for a long, long time. And uh, I know that sounds kind of strange, but the things that I hated the most were the things that I missed the most. It is a little strange, but I have to say it makes complete sense. At some point or another, all of us have been in some situation where All we could think about was we couldn't wait for it to end, to get out of school, to move away from our parents, to leave the church or the job or the band or the city that we're in. We can't wait. And then, later, when we look back, there is something about that place that we hated that we just cannot get out of our system. These vets are just the most extreme possible example of that kind of thing. Literally, they were in a situation where people were trying to kill them. And when they look back, they think, you know, that wasn't all bad. Well, you're listening to This American Life from Chicago Public Radio, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Today on our program, we bring you three stories of people leaving the fold and leaving parts of themselves behind when they do it. Act one of our show, I've got a secret I've been hiding from you. In that act, my friend, prepare to be shocked. We have the true story of Jerry Springer and his first career as a politician, an idealistic politician who fought hard for what he thought was right and was popular to boot, successful. Act two, God and hockey. In that act, a smackdown between the God of the Old Testament and the New York Rangers for the souls of a young couple from New Jersey. Act three, nuns amuck. Some nuns in the mountain of Appalachia decide they want to be nuns 
just without the Catholic Church. Stay with us. Equan, I've got a secret I've been hiding from you. Chances are, I think I'm pretty safe in guessing this, you do not think that you need to learn anything else about trash TV talk show host Jerry Springer. You pretty much have an opinion about him. You know what you think of him. Our producer, Alex Bloomberg, grew up in the city where Springer was mayor years ago, and he put together this story. Jerry Springer arrived in Cincinnati in 1969, fresh out of law school with a job at a downtown firm. And in just six months, he announced he was running for Congress against the conservative incumbent. He was 25. He had no experience. Nobody had ever heard of him. But he was against the war in Vietnam, and he supported civil rights. And here's the thing you might not guess. He was fantastic. Patricia Gary and Gene Galvin are both Cincinnati political veterans. Here's how they remember him. He was absolutely the most gifted, natural politician I ever saw. The grandmothers all loved him. The daughters all loved him. You know, the brothers and sisters, everybody, you know, was a good friend of his. They were great. I mean, he, there was always that a kind of a glamour around him, you know, where he was clearly a golden boy. I, I put Springer at the level of Ronald Reagan, uh, Bobby Kennedy, uh, Bill Clinton. He's that level. And it's not just local Cincinnati people who feel this way about Springer. Mike Ford met Springer back in the 70s, but has moved up in politics and is today a Democratic political strategist at the national level, most recently hired to consult with the Dean campaign. I worked with Clinton, 90, 92, 88, Dukakis, um, 80, I worked for Kennedy, 76, I went through Birch by Mo Udall and Jimmy Carter. He's the best I've ever seen. Bar none. Hey, welcome to the show. How you doing? My guests today say they're cold-hearted mistresses who are proud to be breaking up marriages. Please meet Holly. She says she does more than just babysit her friend's three kids. Holly, what is going on? I've been screwing my friend's husband. <laughs> kind of a long drop from wanting to save the world to hosting TV shows with titles like I Have Sex With My Twin and I Want To Be A Teen Stripper. The story of Jerry Springer is the story of an act of transformation so complete and so total that most people don't even know it happened. It's really the story of two Jerry Springers, one known only to a pocket of people in southwest Ohio as the heir apparent to progressive politics in America, the other known the world over as the king of trash TV. Go ahead, tell her. Teresa? I've been screwing your husband. And he loves having sex with this. Oh, he was Kennedy-like. Very bright. This is a comparison that comes up a lot when people talk about the other Jerry Springer. And it's no coincidence. The summer before Springer first ran for office in Cincinnati, he'd worked as a volunteer with Bobby Kennedy's presidential campaign. Here's Gene Galvin. When Jerry got to Cincinnati, he had a, a Boston, Har- Boston slash Harvard slash Kennedy accent. He doesn't have it anymore, but when he got here, he had it. If you hear any old tape of him from that era, uh, see any video clips, uh, Jerry Springer came to town talking like uh, Bobby Kennedy. My campaign is based upon the proposition that the answers to the problems which currently plague our cities our towns and our homes are not to be found in the decisions in Washington, 
They are instead to be found in the hearts, minds, and resources of our own people here at home. On old footage from this campaign, Springer looks even younger than 25. He looks like a kid in one of his father's suits, pretending to be Bobby Kennedy. But crowds loved him. He seemed like somebody reaching for something big, even when he's talking about business prosperity and the gross national product. The GNP by itself is no mark of our national achievement, for it includes smokestacks that pollute, drugs that destroy, and ambulances which clear our highways of human wreckage. It includes a mugger's knife, a rioter's bomb, and Oswald's rifle. But if the GNP tells us all this, there is much that it does not tell us. It says nothing of the health of our families, the quality of their education, or the joy of their play. Springer was running in one of the whitest and most conservative parts of a very conservative city against a 10-year incumbent, and he lost that first race. It was the last time he would lose an election for the next decade. One year later, he ran for and was elected to the Cincinnati City Council. Tim Burke was his legislative aide on the council. Jerry could go into a VFW hall and talk about why he was opposed to the war in Vietnam, and that was not a popular thing to do. He wouldn't convince VFW folks, at least not the majority of them, that they should come out against the war in Vietnam. That wasn't in their nature. But he'd walk out of their room, and they'd like him. This is the remarkable thing about Jerry Springer, the politician. Again, longtime friend Gene Galvin. He has connectability that transcends specific viewpoints of people. He get votes from West Siders saying, I don't agree with anything you say, but I just like your style. I like your guts. The result of this was that on city council, Springer had an uncanny ability to bring a marginal message without actually marginalizing himself. Again, here's Tim Burke, Springer's legislative aide. In 1971, when Jerry was elected to city council, um, there was a proposal to build Riverfront Arena. And the proposal was to do it with public dollars. And the original vote on council as to how that was going to go was an eight-to-one vote. Jerry was the only one who opposed it. Opposed doing it. Opposed doing it with public dollars. The day of a critical vote, two members of council were away, and it needed seven votes in order to meet certain of the procedural requirements. Jerry refused to give them the procedural vote, which had been the tradition you don't hold something up on a procedural vote. You're free to vote against it on the merits, but you don't hold it up on Well, Jerry bucked tradition and then started just talking about why this was a bad thing to do and we ought not to be publicly financing these things that ought to be supported by private business. And in the end, he captured the attention of the citizens of Cincinnati. They rallied to his side. The other politicians on council got that message and Riverfront Coliseum was built with private dollars, with very little public subsidy involved. And you don't see that happening in stadiums and arenas today. Oh, it really got you going, I'll tell you. Guy Kuchenberger is a Republican and was one of Springer's council opponents on Riverfront Coliseum funding. He says it wasn't any fun being on the other side of an issue from Springer. I mean, he'd you know, make a public appeal and uh, state a public position for an issue and you know, you were either you either went with him or you were the bad guy. I mean, you didn't make a choice then. In 1974, Springer got elected to his second term with more votes than anyone else in city council. Six months later, he resigned in a scandal. An FBI investigation into an illegal massage parlor across the river in Kentucky revealed that he'd been a repeat customer. How did they know? 
He'd paid for a prostitute with a check. Tim Burke was his legislative aide at the time. Um, we went something like 10 days in a row with the headline story in the Cincinnati Inquirer. Jerry was going through all kinds of personal hell. So was his wife, obviously. So was his family, as he had to call them and explain to them what he had done and what it was doing. And this was a, this was a young man with an absolutely terrific career ahead of him, and it looked like it had all been destroyed. And you personally, what were your thoughts? And part of it was, what the hell were you doing? Um, you know, why would you throw away this terrific political career you had in front of you for a few minutes? At the time, it seemed that people weren't angry at the act as much as they were at the sheer stupidity of paying for it by check. But Springer was clearly shaken. The minute the facts became public, he resigned from counsel. So quickly, in fact, that his colleagues seemed a little shocked. I think Jerry would tell the story that his initial thoughts were, I'm going to resign, I'm disgraced, I'm leaving town, I'm going to go start a new life someplace else. Within about 24 hours, he and his wife, Mickey, and, and his other friends decided that wasn't the way to do it. And he held another press conference. And he just said, here's what happened, here's what I did, I'm ashamed of it, I apologize, and just came absolutely and bared his soul to the Cincinnati public and they rallied to him again. It was amazing. People were, <laughs> some of the nuns out of the College of Mount St. Joseph started, started a thing where they were sending stones and little, little pebbles to members of Cincinnati City Council trying to encourage them to reject Springer's resignation with the message, he who was without sin should cast the first stone. You know, it was just, it was tremendous the way that people responded to him. And that was really what started his comeback. After a few months, Springer took tentative steps to get back into public life and mounted another run for city council. The Democratic Party wouldn't endorse him, but they did leave a spot open for him on the ballot. Gene Galvin went with him to campaign. The St. Patrick's Day parade in Cincinnati at the time was huge, huge. Ran through the downtown streets. Thousands of people would come. You'd hope for great weather. And on this day, we had great weather. A tremendous crowd. And as Jerry would come down through the crowd, they jeered him. They mocked him. And some of it didn't mean they wouldn't vote for him, but they mocked him. Hey, Jerry, you got a check on you? Hey, Jerry, you're really stupid, aren't you? Why'd you write a check? Just yelling all this stuff. And he would just sit there and smile and laugh and take it. And, uh, boy, my heart was kind of breaking for my buddy up on that back seat because I'm down driving this car. He just, he just took a beating. Still. The campaign worked. Eighteen months after resigning from city council in disgrace and admitting publicly that he'd paid for a prostitute with a check, Jerry Springer was elected by the citizens of Cincinnati to a third term on city council. Two years later, back on the Democratic ticket again, he was elected mayor, this time with the largest vote total in the city's history. It's not going too far to say that less than four years after being caught writing a check to a prostitute, Jerry Springer had become the most popular politician in Cincinnati ever. Partly because he was able to mock his own stupidity. A rock and roll radio station convinced him to record a spoof commercial, a takeoff on a popular credit card ad at the time. Hi, do you know me? My face is seen all over Cincinnati constantly. But when I travel, say across state lines, people don't know the difference between Jerry Springer and Jerry Ford. So that's why I carry this, the American Expense Card. It's the card that's good at thousands of clubs and motels across the river. 
I can even get instant, hassle-free check approval. For quick, enjoyable entertainment, it can't be beat. Just like me. Most people, if they know the story at all, they know it wrong. They think Jerry Springer was mayor, there was a prostitution scandal, he resigned, and then had nothing else to do but become the Jerry Springer of the Jerry Springer show. The truth is much stranger and more complicated. Jerry Springer became mayor after the prostitute, and the Jerry Springer show was a full decade and a half after that, during which time Springer left politics more or less on his own terms and then rose again to the top of an entirely different field, television journalism. The president of the local Teamsters Union in Cincinnati in northern Kentucky is warning trucking companies to send trucks out in convoys after midnight on Monday. This is Jerry Springer as he was known to Cincinnatians throughout the 80s, local news anchor. Here's how he got there. In 1980, he stepped down as mayor to run for governor and lost in a tough three-way race. When it was over, he was out of money and jobless, so he accepted an offer to anchor the local news at Channel 5, the lowest-ranked local news program. In a fairly bold programming move, the station also let him end the broadcast with his own nightly commentaries, which were often of a liberal bent, pro-union, anti-Reagan, and Bush. He ended the broadcast each night with his signature phrase, take care of yourself and each other. Springer spent 10 years at Channel 5, during which he brought the nightly news from last to first in the ratings and earned 10 Emmy Awards. He attracted notice, including offers to host his own show. In September of 1991, the first Jerry Springer show was taped. Soon afterwards, Jerry Springer left Cincinnati for good. His final commentary on the local news is legendary. <clears throat> okay, bear with me. This will be a little tough. You should know this isn't the first time I thought about leaving. I thought about it some 20 years ago when a check that would soon become part of Cincinnati folklore made me see life from the bottom. To be honest, a thought about ending it all crossed my mind. But a more reasonable alternative seemed to be, hey, how about just leaving town, running away, starting life over someplace else? You see, in political terms as well as human, here in Cincinnati, I was dead. But then, in the probably the luckiest decision I ever made, I decided, no, I'm staying put. I would withstand all the jokes, all the ridicule. I'd pretend it didn't hurt. And I would give every ounce of my being to Cincinnati. Why, in time, I was thinking, you'd have to like me. Or if not like me, at least respect me. And I'd run for counsel, even unendorsed. And I'd prove to you I could be the best public servant you ever had. Or I'd die trying. Be it as a mayor, an anchor, or a commentator, whatever it took, I was determined to have you know that I was more than a check and a hooker on a one-night stand. But something happened along the way. Maybe it's God's way of teaching us. I don't know, but you see, in trying to prove something to you, I learned something about me. I learned that I had fallen in love with you, with Cincinnati, with you who taught me more about life and caring and forgiving, and also, most importantly, giving, giving something back, which is part of the reason I have been excuse me, so sad this week, why, why it's so hard to say goodbye. God bless you, and goodbye. Amy, you have a friend, Rusty. Let's now welcome him to the show. Here is oh, Rusty. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Come on, Rusty. What's up, tough guy? What's up, tough guy? It wasn't immediate, the switch from the nightly news to this. Originally, the Springer show was meant to be the successor to Phil Donahue, 
Indeed, the first year's topics included homelessness and gun control. Springer booked political guests like Oliver North and Jesse Jackson, and the show seemed innocent and upstanding. One early show bears the quaint title, Single People on the Outside Looking In. But the ratings tanked, a new producer was hired, and, well, you know the rest. For those from Cincinnati, those who know the other Jerry Springer, watching the show can be bewildering. Again, here's Patricia Gary, who used to work with Jerry back in the city council days. Well, first off, that doesn't look like Jerry. What, what is it about him? What do you think that when you see what do you see when you're looking at him? I don't know. I, you know, I'm wondering. I mean, is he even in there? You know, where is Jerry? And but he's he's still got that outward. You know, he can be happy with the microphones and you know and, and smiling and all that. And then he does that little pseudo commentary at the end. Um, you know, where's that positive energy? Where's that belief that he can make a difference? Where's that uh, wanting to make a difference? That striving. That you know, it's always shooting upward. I don't think that person. I don't know if that person is around. That's that's the thing that seems to me is that somebody with this gift clearly. It's a Greek tragedy, isn't it? It's, it's really a Greek tragedy. Yeah, couldn't have written a better one. To end up being, to be end up being the Joker, instead of being the king. I don't. I'm not conflicted because I'm not. I know there's me, and then there's the show. Jerry Springer might be the only person intimately familiar with Jerry Springer who claims to feel no ambivalence about the place Jerry Springer has ended up. I talked to him in his office before he taped his show. It's hard not to like him. He's engaging, funny. But there's a certain practice quality to the way he answers questions about his career choices. You know, I create this persona for the show, and that's what it is. It's, you know, I'm an act. You know, it's like I'm in movies. You know, no one... I mean, look, no one goes after... Um, some actor because let's say he played Hitler in the movies. I, I don't. I. I mean, I'm not saying like anybody should have a yeah have an issue with it at all. Here's a person who's like you know who's every st- stage of their of their professional career it's been imbued with the sense of trying to make a difference until you get to the Springer Show. How well, do, we've how certainly you know? made a difference in television. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure people are happy about it. I try not to think about it too much. Um, life is what it is and you take what's handed and you work as hard as you can and hopefully you'll be successful And but I, I just don't spend too much time worrying about that you know I do my show and, I, and look it's I've always said it's a stupid show and you know I've had a wonderful life because of it and all that but I've never for a second thought that it's important you know it's trivial it's chewing gum and I and I recognize that you know, once you do something that's significant in life, all this other stuff is just a way to eat. From talking to Springer and his friends, I think the best answer to the question, how did this idealistic political guy end up in a job where he helps no one, is partly he stumbled into it and was surprised as anyone about how big it got. Once the show started what they euphemistically referred to as targeting the youth market, its success was both instantaneous and breathtaking. Within the span of a couple of years, Springer went from being just another talk show host to a worldwide phenomenon. The Springer Show can be seen on televisions in over 40 countries worldwide, including Tunisia. And when the show's named after you, you get a lot of the money. And the money really meant something to him. He'd come to this country when he was five, the child of Jewish refugees, who escaped to America from Nazi Germany. 
But there is some evidence that Springer is more ambivalent about his current job than he's willing to let on to a reporter. About four or five years ago, he started making phone calls to his old friend, Mike Ford, who ran several of Springer's political campaigns, just to chat about politics. The more notoriety the show attracted, the more popular it became, the more frequently, it seemed to Mike, Jerry would phone him. We talked, I would say, you know, maybe once a month, and it was always about getting back in. He would call me, and he would say, so what are we going to do? And I would say, well, I'm doing it. I don't know what you're going to do, you know, but it's not happening on the show. And then we'd talk about options, and we looked at everything. I went down to Mississippi to look at running against Trent Lott. Uh, we looked in New Orleans. We looked everywhere, but especially in Ohio. And, uh, you know, he was he was feeling it out for years. I mean, he was empty, okay? That's the, that's the issue here. The show does not make him happy. It didn't fill his needs as a person. If you follow the news very closely, you may recall stories in early 2003 that Jerry Springer was considering a run for Senate in Ohio. Much of the national news reported this as a joke, a talk show fool trying to dress up as a statesman. But the small band of Jerry's friends from before knew the story was actually the opposite. A former statesman was trying to shake off the costume of a talk show fool. What this meant for Jerry was going around the state and speaking in front of as many Democrats as he possibly could. Gene Galvin went with him. People say, would you come down to Hawking College and speak? Yes. Will you come to the Mercer County Democratic Party dinner and speak? Yes. Will you come down to Athens County and help a young Ohio University woman running for city council win an election? Yes. He goes. I introduced him to the State Democratic County Chairs Association back in January. Again, Tim Burke. And as I introduced him, you could just see that there was a great deal of skepticism in that room. Because for the most part, the county chairs around the state of Ohio only knew Jerry for this crazy television show he has. Many of you know him only as a host of some goofy television show. I know him as somebody who cares deeply about people, about politics. I'm proud to introduce you to my longtime friend, Jerry Springer. Thank you very much. May you never be on my show. You could literally watch the audience change. From skepticism to an audience that was laughing with Jerry. The tax cuts proposed by the president are obscene. What the hell is he giving someone like me a tax break for? The argument... The argument for the tax package, and you've heard it on the television, you hear it all the time. The argument for the tax package is to give people back their money so they'll spend it and will help the economy. Here's what's stupid. You rich people can already afford anything they want to buy. Do you think if I get a check back in the mail, suddenly I'm going to buy something? If I want to buy something now, I'll go out and buy it. Don't give me the money. Take that money and make sure that every citizen in the United States of America has health insurance. That's where you spend the money. If we would get that message across to the citizens of Ohio, I don't care how Republican your district looks, they will say, uh-huh, 
that relates to me. Now there's a reason to sign up and vote Democrat. We got to give them a reason. That's what we stand for. We are right on the issues. That's what's so, it just drives me insane when I watch the news and I see this garbage. Look, I'm the king of garbage, so I know garbage. And at the end of the speech, he had them all up on their feet. These are a bunch of hard-bitten politicians who have heard lots of political speeches in their lives, and he had them on their feet at the end of the speech. He turned the room just like that. You don't have to be a political strategist, however, to design the attack ad against the Jerry Springer Senate campaign. He airs one himself, twice a day in most markets, for an hour each time. So along with the speeches and the candidate appearances, Mike Ford tried to research the question, could Jerry Springer the man get beyond Jerry Springer the show? Put another way, had Springer forever blown his chance to do the one thing he truly loved doing? We put together more or less focus groups, and we sat him in a room, and instead of asking questions directly about Jerry, we decided what we should do is, in effect, run a campaign before their eyes that was completely honest about all the things he'd ever done wrong or were distasteful, and then mixing them with a bio of the guy and then letting him talk to camera about issues. We had uh, impressive voices reading mean, horrible, nasty editorials. They had clips from the show. They had headlines about bad things. They, they saw all the bad, but then they saw a lot of the good. In every market, we started horribly. And every single one of them turned around in every audience, in every market, and the key thing there was that information is received in inverse proportion to its predictability. So if you said Jerry Springer is dating a llama, they would go, yeah, yeah, I saw that in the Enquirer. But then you start to unroll this other stuff. Uh, and and when, then when he looked to camera uh, and started talking about what's going on in the state and in the country, it was completely persuasive because it was all new. But there was one other thing they told Mike Ford. All the people and all the focus groups said the only way they could vote for him was if he quit his show. The voters, it turns out, could get beyond Springer the show to Springer the man, as long as Springer the man did it first. Which is what killed his exploratory bid in the end. He couldn't get out of his TV contract in time to start a Senate race. But he's still out there giving speeches. If you go to the website runjerryrun.com, you'll see five events with Ohio Democratic organizations scheduled next month alone. Springer's been thinking a lot about his message. He hits it in every speech he gives, and it goes something like this. We all believe, Republicans and Democrats alike, that the purpose of government is to provide protection. No one disputes that government should maintain a military or a police force or try to stop terrorists. But Democrats believe that government should protect its citizens from another form of violence as well. The violence of a pink slip on a Friday afternoon that says you've been laid off and now you don't have enough money to take care of your family. You know, job insecurity, the inability to get health insurance, that, that you have to choose, should I take my medicine this month or do I buy my kid a coat for the winter? So the Democratic Party exists in America today to provide protection for middle and low-income America, particularly against economic violence as well as military violence. Has, has doing the show for these, the, the, for these last, you know, eight and ten years, has it has it sort of informed your your political thinking in any way? No, it's just confirmed it. I mean, any job I've ever had, it's been the same constituency. It's been middle and low income people 
that need a voice, that need help, that need whatever. So even in my entertainment, that's my base. And politics certainly was my base. When I practiced law, it was my base. I mean, you know, these, this is who I am. 54 years ago this week, I came to America. I was five years old. Most of my family had been killed in the uh, Holocaust, in the uh, camps in, in Germany and Austria during World War II. The speech that you're hearing now is one Springer delivered back in January of 2003 to a group of Ohio Democratic County chairs. There was no press there, and the only reason we have it on tape is because an audience member recorded the whole thing on a personal tape machine from his chair. Probably thought it would be a joke, but he was so moved by the speech that he took the tape and had it duplicated at his own expense, sent it around to all the county chairmen around the state. The idea being... Here's a guy with a message for us. In the speech, Springer gives a standard economic spiel. It also condemns America's current foreign policy as arrogant and bullying. And then he ends with his own story of first coming to America with his refugee parents on a boat from Europe. We came over on the Queen Mary, January 19th to January 24th, a five-day voyage over to America in 1949. And... When we arrived, my very first memory was my mom waking me up and saying, Gerald, we have to go up on the top deck there, one of the decks of the Queen Mary. And all I remember, that the rest has been told to me, I was only five, but I vividly remember everyone standing out on top of the ship and the deck there, there were about 2,000 passengers on board, packed together, packed together. And what I remember other than being freezing is that nobody said a word. It was absolute quiet. And we were passing the Statue of Liberty. And my mother told me later on, as I got older, because obviously I wouldn't remember exactly what I had said, but she remembers me asking her, what, what are we looking at? And, you know, what does it mean? And she said in German, Ein Tag alles. One day everything. The Statue of Liberty means everything. We take it for granted today. We take it for granted. Remember, the Statue of Liberty stands for what America is. We as Democrats have to remind ourselves and remind the country the great principles we stand for. This is a place of protection. This is not a country of bullies. We are not an empire. We are the light. We are the Statue of Liberty. Thank you for having me. The elements aren't new. The immigrant experience, help for working people, the Statue of Liberty. But the effect is somehow electrifying for the people in that hall and the people passing around this tape. Wouldn't it be funny if in the end what the world really needs is more Jerry Springer? Alex Bloomberg is one of the producers of our show. Coming up, so a bunch of nuns and an Orthodox Jew walk into a bar. Actually, they walk into the second half of our show, and that happens in just one minute. From Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International, when our program continues.
This is American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Today's program, stories of people leaving the fold, and like Jerry Springer, having one part of them that stays stuck back in the old days before they left. We've arrived at Act 2 of our show, Act 2, God and Hockey. Shalom Auslander and his wife were raised in religious homes, but they were wobbling away from it, thinking of leaving the fold. But still living in an Orthodox Jewish community in Teaneck, New Jersey, they were huge fans of the hockey team, the New York Rangers. And in 1994, the Rangers had an incredible season, beat the Islanders, beat the Devils in a seven-game double overtime win, went to the playoffs against Vancouver. And during one of these away games, fans could go, while the team was in Vancouver, for $5 and sit in Madison Square Garden and watch the game on the Jumbotron with other fans. But the problem for this couple was the game was on a Saturday, and religious Jews don't drive on Saturdays. It's against the rules of the religion. Shalom and his wife really, really wanted to go. So this was, you know, this was push coming to shove in terms of the whole God existence thing. We kind of looked at each other, and I, I was all for going. I just said, oh, you know, to hell with it. My, my argument was if, uh, you know, God got them in that position— and maybe God made the Rangers winners. God made look. He brought over Messier from Canada. He brought over Kovala from Russia. He really went out of his way <laughs> to get these guys into this position to win. And you know, it was probably a mitzvah to go to go watch them. You know, this commandment to go watch them. What was her argument? Uh, her argument was uh, fear, <laughs> terror, uh, God, revenge. So. Her feeling was, let's walk. It was it's about fourteen miles from what we judged. Wait a second. You actually thought that if you if if you drove um, instead of walked, that that God would actually make the team lose. I did. That would be his revenge on you, really? Yeah, yeah. I thought. Well, I certainly knew that if it did happen, there'd be a part of my head that went, oh, "Nice going." Nice going. They, they they play all season, and then you got to go get in a cab, and now look what happened. <laughs> so so let's walk from New Jersey into into Manhattan, literally like yes, literally in, like cross from some bridge down Teaneck Road through uh, you know walk along the side of Route Four, which is this eight lane super slab highway. Cross the George Washington Bridge, walk down the highway, cross through Harlem, hit Broadway, and then it's a hundred blocks down to Madison Square Garden. So we go, and as we're heading along, it's turning out to be quite a longer walk than we thought it was, particularly, you know, in our Sabbath finest, and those are hard shoes. Uh, but her feet are slowly uh, blistering, and it's just getting worse and worse, and she's complaining more and more. Um, I mean, it's at the point where she's taking her shoes off and walking, and I don't know how many, you know, how many of you have been in Manhattan, but that's a huge commitment to walk down a Manhattan street in just your socks. Is you've got to be in a lot of pain. Right. So we're we're get by the time we get there, sort of the euphoria of the game took over, and it was just really great to be there. But we we didn't really consider God much after that until the Rangers lost. I think they lost 4-1 or something. It just it wasn't it was ridiculous. And the game just ended and everyone just starts filing out miserably and we're just standing there just dumbfounded. I mean, not only do we now hate the Rangers, but my we're just theologically we're spiraling. And the moment that final buzzer rang, my wife looked at me and said, "We should have driven." It was just that kind of all right, if this is the way he's going to play, if this is the kind of game he's playing, then uh, we're not having any of it. And 
we left it. We left the garden. I just had I had a sidewalk hot dog. I was like, I'm strictly non-kosher for now on. But yeah, <laughs> take that. Yeah, how do you like that? <laughs> Where can I get a slim jim around here? And a milk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I never thought about like this is the downside of having a personal relationship with God is that you'd constantly be bearing a grudge. I thought it was all just like reassurance and stuff from God all the time. He's there in times of need. I never thought that people like you could actually just feel like a grudge against him for something like this. Well, you know, it's, it depends what kind of God you're picturing. I, I came from a kind of, you know, incredibly, the normally incredibly dysfunctional family with a pretty overbearing father. So as a kid, you go into like these, you know, Hebrew schools, you're hearing our father who art in heaven. And I'm going, oh, God, tell me there's not another one up in heaven. He's right. bad enough at home. He's bad enough at home. Well, it's so interesting. I realized that, as you say that, like, like my image of God is exactly, I've never put this together in my life, is exactly my image of my father, but bigger, which, which is, which is um, he's usually not around. Sometimes he'll take an interest. He means well, but mostly he's kind of like, you're on your own. Yeah, that wasn't mine. I, I wish that were mine. Mine was uh, a god in heaven, you know, lumbering around in his underpants, half drunk on Ketam wine, looking <laughs> to yell at somebody. <laughs> so, so I pictured that guy watching the Ranger game going, yeah, the hell with you, buddy. <laughs> yeah. So you have this, this moment with the team. Does this actually have consequences past that that week? You know, I think it helped hasten the slide. I think it was... It was the week after we uh, was the first time that we just ignored the fact that it was Sabbath, and I think our our big our big God revolution at that point was to get in our car and go to a mall, and that was the big one for us. Sabbath was the big one. That's the hard one to get past. So this happened a decade ago. Have there been times that you missed being religious, having that life, having that community? Is there some part of it that you've missed along the way? No, because I gave up the practice of it. But, uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, my family or the people from that community or anybody I went to school with would look at me and say, oh, he's completely irreligious and not spiritual at all. But the, the truth is I'm, I kind of feel like the most religious person I know because I still haven't quite gotten that God out of my head. He's still there. He still makes comments. There's always the picture of a big old frowning man in the back of the room shaking his head saying, you're going to pay for this. So I could, I could say I don't believe in it, but that's not going to get that character out of my life. And I don't know why I can't just give it up. I wish I could. Shalom Auslander in upstate New York. He has a collection of short stories coming out next year called Beware of God. Act three, nuns amok. Now the story of some people who absolutely did not want to leave the fold and tried, in fact, to leave without leaving. This was in the 1960s in an order of nuns called the Glenmary Sisters. Susan Drury tracked down some of them to talk about what happened. They didn't become nuns to escape the world. They didn't go live a life of cloistered contemplation. These women wanted to be Glenmary Sisters because they wanted a bigger, wider life. They wanted to get out of their hometowns. They wanted to serve the poor. They wanted adventure. Monica Appleby grew up in Chicago. When she graduated from her Catholic high school in 1954, she knew that she didn't want to be a nurse or a teacher or get married right away. A lot of her friends were joining the convent, but she was certain she didn't want to be like the nuns she knew from school. 
Then she got a brochure from the Glenmary sisters and was intrigued by the photo on the cover. Well, it's a sister who's all who has a veil on and you know a starch piece across her head, and her it's only her face shows, but she is sitting at a tractor driving. I thought it would be really neat to drive a tractor, and even for a sister to drive a car in those days was highly unusual. I heard later though that that was a stage picture. <laughs> the Glenmary sisters never did drive drive tractors. Glenmary sisters were started in the 1940s, and their founder, Father Bishop, always intended that they would be a different kind of order. Unlike almost all other nuns in the U.S. at that time, the Glenmary sisters were not going to have hospitals or schools or any other institutions. Their job was to serve the poor, to just do whatever was needed in the poor towns where they were sent. Even more unusual, they were going to minister not primarily to Catholics, but to people in places where there were few or no Catholics to missions in rural parts of Appalachia, where many people had never seen nuns. And though they were cutting-edge nuns, they were still nuns. They had mass every day and said their prayers three times a day. They studied theological books during meals and had silence every evening. These practices kept them grounded in their training and faith, they say, but other rules seemed to get in the way. Marie Cirillo joined the Glenmary sisters in 1948 and says that one of the greatest obstacles to doing their work was that they had to wear the traditional habit. It was floor length, it was gray wool, it had a veil. And it had a cape on it. And would, you know, oh God. And I remember going up a hollow, getting out of the car, trying to climb up this mountain to this house. And the mother comes out and the kids are on the porch and starts screaming, Mama, Mama, witches, witches. And I thought, God, you know, I don't need this. <laughs> and then another thing that was bothersome was that we couldn't eat with people. And if you're going out from the convent into the mountains and you're driving around and you've packed your sandwich, but if you're stopping in a house and they want you to have something and you can't do it, and then you have to go get in the car and start nibbling your food. You think, this is so stupid, so stupid. That part didn't work at all. Here's Monica Appleby again. The basis of our work was building relationships, and, and since we were so strange, it was, you know, finding a way for people to trust us. So that's why you would start questioning. The timing was right for the questions they raised. In the early 60s, the Second Vatican Council was meeting to try to figure out how the Catholic Church could adapt to become more relevant to the modern world. The Pope asked every religious order to develop their own proposals for changes they thought would help them carry out their missions. The Glenmary sisters were excited by the chance. The sisters proposed that they be allowed to participate in broader political work. They wanted permission to attend conferences on non-religious matters, and they wanted to be able to have secular people in their houses— to invite people for meals and fellowship. In addition, the sisters had begun to wear a modified habit, a two-piece suit with a short veil. It was one magazine article that changed everything. In July of 1966, the Saturday Evening Post read an article titled The New Nuns. The tone of the article was admiring of the Glenmary sisters, but the descriptions and photos of the nuns 
eating out at night, playing with children in alleys, showing their legs, did not go over well with conservative Catholics. Their bishop was told to rein them in. And by early 1967, they got word from Rome. The sisters' recommendations for their order had been rejected. They would not accept, for one thing, the short habit. The cardinal said it showed too much bosom. Helen Lewis was a community college teacher in Virginia and worked closely with many of the Glenmary sisters for decades. She and Monica Appleby wrote about them in a book called Mountain Sisters. The cardinal also said that they were acting as if they were the only agents of social change. He, he felt that they were a little bit, I guess, too uppity or too arrogant or something in making all these recommendations. And so they were ordered to go back to cloister, go back to all of the old rules and regulations, go back to the long habit. The church had asked them to weigh in, had asked for their ideas, and then the church had rejected those ideas wholesale. In fact, by being ordered back to cloister, back into the traditional habits, they were given more restrictions than they'd ever had. And this is when they set out on a very unusual path. They decided they wanted to live as religious sisters, without the church itself. They were going to quit, but stay in Appalachia, serve the poor, and continue what they saw as their religious work. They were going to leave not because they wanted a new life, but because they wanted to do what they had felt called to do all along. Seventy of them quit, and of those 70, 44 started their own group they called FOCUS, Federation of Communities in Service. We had a meeting with this Father Becker, who was representing the bishop, and we sat around a table dividing up the property and the goods and I do remember thinking that this is probably as close to the feeling of the divorce that I could ever have because it was like I had lived for 18 years with these women and then all of a sudden we had this split. The former sisters began building their new lives outside of the convent as members of Focus. They went back to work in many of the same towns and cities they had been in before. They elected Monica Appleby as their president. Monica's job was to raise some money and help this organization hang together. They had a ceremony and a special mass and made commitments to each other that mimicked the vows they made in the convent. Chastity, poverty, obedience. Just as in the convent, they wore special rings. But this time, the rings signified their commitment to focus. For many of the former sisters, this was the first time in their lives they had lived on their own, without their family or the church providing for them. Now they had to buy clothes, keep bank accounts, find housing, and find jobs that would support them while they worked with the poor. They had to adjust to regular life in the secular world. Just finding clothes to wear and figuring out how to dress. We could give each other, you know, suggestions. <laughs> it was kind of a teenage thing. I remember I went to Chicago, and um, I got everything on sale. But I, I enjoyed picking out. I picked out a green suit, I remember, that was polyester, so it didn't wrinkle. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was real sharp. <laughs> so while the former sisters had decided they would live as nuns, they didn't look like nuns anymore. And as Anne Liebig tells me, that changed things. 
especially with men. Before we had the habit, like you said, and you'd see people and you'd smile and, you know, it was all, there wasn't anything sexual going on. But after, when I wasn't a nun anymore, didn't have that on and had regular clothes, I, I began to sense that there, there was some different reactions from men as you smile at them and stuff. And then I started figuring out that there was something about flirting. I thought, well, this flirting thing, I better learn about that. I think the hardest thing, and it still lingers a little bit, was that some people were so anti-structure anything that they just wanted to, to not be controlled in any way or organize anything or do anything together. Just let me free. Because they had been so pinched <laughs> with, with the structure, they just want, it's, I guess, maybe like in prison, you know. So th- I think that was the major tension. The sisters didn't want to be obedient to any one person, so they had to figure out how to share authority. They also thought they could share money. Their plan was that those who could get paying jobs would make a budget for themselves, then send the rest of the money to the group to support some of the sisters who were doing unpaid mission work. But as Helen says, it was a lot harder than they thought. It was hard for them to share money, plus the fact that they had set up for themselves these meager budgets, (laughs) just very small amounts of money for clothes and for gasoline and transportation. and, And so it's just became not at all possible for them to do that. And I think that surprised them. And they didn't want to say they didn't want to share, and they didn't want to say they wanted to keep their own money if they were working, you know, for a job. But they needed it. You know, it was, I mean, they were poor. All the things they needed to keep going were things the church used to provide community and common purpose, organization and financial support that made the work possible. They really couldn't make what they wanted, an order of sisters, without the institution, without the hierarchy, without the things that drove them crazy. So they struggled with obedience. They struggled with poverty. That left one more vow. They had promised to remain celibate, and I don't think they intended to romance. But there were a lot of young men in the mountains who were in love with these sisters. I mean, they were intrigued with them. And there's, I think there's sort of a, they had fantasies of romancing Catholic sisters, maybe. I don't know. And so very soon they were being hit upon by some of these young men, or at least being courted. They left the church in 1967. By 1969, they were making money, working regular jobs, and living apart from one another. Many were dating and married. Finally, they all gathered together in Big Stone Gap and decided they didn't want to have an organization at all. They didn't want to do the fundraising. They didn't want to contribute from their own wages. They didn't want all the meetings where they'd make decisions together. And they didn't want to pay for a staff. As president, Monica was fired. I remember it distinctly because it was at this set of three workshops that I organized. And I remember sitting in the room that was the dining room where the big table was located and screaming and I I made a scream like an animal and I was just flattened but I knew it was the right thing to do I perfectly agreed with what people were saying all those high ideals that we had 
weren't able to be materialized in the real world, that all those pictures in my mind were changed. When they look back, Monica and the others don't think it was a mistake to leave the church, and they don't really see focus as a failure. Things evolved, they say. They continued to do the same kind of work, most of them, but on their own in social service jobs of different kinds. And many of them have stayed in touch. 23 of the former sisters, along with their husbands and partners and children, are still members of a scaled-back version of Focus. They gather at least once a year to socialize, worship, and study together. And now, as many of the members enter their 60s and 70s, they're wanting to try again and build one last organization, a retirement center, a place where, as Monica says, they can live together, care for each other, and learn to age and die gracefully. Susan Drury lives in Tennessee. Our program was produced today by Alex Bloomberg and myself with Diane Cook, Jane Limbisky, Starley Kine, and Sarah Koenig. Our senior producer is Julie Snyder. Production help from Todd Bachman and Kelsey Dild. Special thanks today to Greg Flannery, John Keysweater, Rick Pender, Joel Moss, Adam Rosenberg, Sally Ford, Bo Wood, Robin Wood, Scott Gamfer, and the Cincinnati Historical Society. You know you can download audio of our program at audible.com slash thisamericanlife, where they have public radio programs, best-selling books, even the New York Times, all at audible.com. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our show comes from Volkswagen of America. And the new Touareg SUV, the Volkswagen that does what other Volkswagens don't. More about the Touareg at VW.com. And from the Kauffman Foundation of Kansas City, accelerating entrepreneurship across America on the web at KAUFFMAN.org. And from the listeners of WBEZ Chicago, WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia, who reminds you... Till next time, take care of yourself and each other. I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of this American life.